Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. Now here at Built to Sell Radio, we love it when we can bring you a David versus Goliath story where a small, feisty company comes out on top. So today, I'm excited to share with you the story of how Aaron Leibtag, the co-founder of the digital healthcare company Pentavir Research Group, attracted an acquisition offer that valued Pentavir at $15 million, despite his company having just 15 employees at the time. To explain just how we did it, here is Aaron Leibtag. Enjoy. Aaron Leibtag, welcome to Built Cell Radio. Thanks so much for having me, John. How did you get into the business of delivering AI-supported medical advice. Give me the backstory on Pentavir. Yeah. Any entrepreneur who takes that leap to go into healthcare, health technology, especially if you have no prior experience in the industry, um, you have to respond or it has to be in a response to a tragedy where where the mission, um, the belief is so strong as a result of that. That, that you take the leap because otherwise it's just an insane journey. Um, so my background uh, is finance. Um, finance working for large retailers, but also spend some time on the private equity side in terms of how do you evaluate companies, consumer facing companies to drive better results. So got an appreciation um, on what happens when you can combine great data with great people and great processes, both the magic that can happen and just the disaster that can happen when that falls apart. Our co-founder, Stephen Aviv, also spent time in finance, but on the technical side, building some of the largest financial systems to ingest data so these companies can make money. And his mother went into what should have been a routine procedure. Uh, the fact that based on her comorbidities, she needed to be put on a certain medication. It was missed by her care team because it was buried in a clinical note and she passed away as a result. So both Steve and I were at a, a point in our corporate careers where, you know, Steve in particularly helped make millions of dollars every day by analyzing data. And how is it where data flows like water in financial services, such a catastrophic event happened to his, his mother? And we were talking and naively we said, wow, here's an industry that makes up 20% of GDP of most developed countries. 80% when we did research, the majority of patients fall through the cracks in some way, shape or form within healthcare. Not all of them have the catastrophic event that Steve's mother had, but every day patients are not receiving treatments, medications, or interventions. And 80% of the data is not used to solve this problem because it exists in the same clinical texts, the same doctor's notes, what has become today known as unstructured data. And we just said, wow, you know, there's a, a massive opportunity there tied to just the magic we've both seen when you can connect great data with great people and great processes. So explain, Aaron, the product you, you built to a layperson. Assume they're not in the medical field or the technology field. Like what, what specifically did you guys build? We built an artificial intelligence engine that is able to ingest and read all of the clinical notes within an electronic health record that a doctor dictates, writes, um, in order to be able to identify patients who are falling through the cracks in healthcare systems. So in a layman's, we're able to take all of that clinical text and turn it into a structured Excel spreadsheet-like data set that can then be used to improve healthcare. And we validated that technology by getting the outcomes of that published in high-impact peer-reviewed journals um, that matters in healthcare. And okay, that's so, the core capability we built. So explain it to me. Um, 
like I'm still trying to get my head around it from a practical standpoint. So if I'm a doctor and I, I type in my notes of the, okay, he's got high blood pressure. I put him on 20 milligrams of such and such, and it's got a bad knee and blah, blah, blah. So how does my doctor entering that information, uh, how does Pentavir sort of absorb that and then spit out a more thoughtful recommendation? Like explain it to me. Yeah. So, so your doctors are already adding and, and documenting all of that information, but because they're so busy, because there's so many diseases and new medications coming on the market, all of that information that they are entering when they see you likely will get missed or not picked up the next time they see you. So imagine a clinician with 20,000 patients. There is in that patient population a huge amount of patients where the evidence that they should be getting a certain medication, a certain treatment, a certain intervention based on diagnoses that are there, has they've fallen through the cracks because you got to read through hundreds of pages of their own notes to be able to pick up and identify these patients. Our technology is able to surface that list of patients in an appropriate way to be able to make it easy for clinicians or all forms of stakeholders to be able to say, oh, this particular patient has confirmed heart failure. All of the you know, characteristics that they should be put on a guideline medical therapy, and for a number of reasons they're not, but now I have the information where I can intervene and get them the care that they should be getting. So is your, is your tool um, basically presenting to any care provider that accesses that electronic record the, uh, you know, the diseases they have and the, and the comorbidities, or is it diagnosing things based on the doctor's notes? Is it, is it saying this doctor is, has entered 16 different notes, and if we look at our million other patients that have the same 16 comorbidities or, or idiosyncrasies, nine times out of 10, they've got cancer of this type. Is it doing the diagnosis or just presenting the information in a, digest, in a digest, digestible fashion? It is not doing the diagnosis. What okay. it is doing is it is surfacing the diagnoses that are there in the notes, in the fragmented places that the evidence exists, and surfacing and structuring that information to make it easy for a clinician, a health system, you know, really all stakeholders within healthcare to be able to say, wow, here's a clean list of patients with all of the evidence that was already documented in the electronic health record, who needs an intervention based on guidelines, based on a product monograph, based on the, you know, the literature that's out there. And that's the non-trivial aspect of the innovation and the artificial intelligence that we built, because what we developed was artificial intelligence that is able to read and understand the complexities of how clinicians document, to be able to find that information, surface it accurately, so that those clinicians can make an intervention or that it can be used for research to understand what is that relationship between patients, their clinicians, their treatments, their comorbidities and their outcomes in the real world, which we still know very little about. Got it. And of course, this gets amplified when a patient starts to see a bunch of different specialists. Every specialist you know, has a bunch of their own notes and, and all of a sudden it's chaos when uh, you start to deal with some serious health in, uh, issues. Right. How did you make money? Like what was the business model? Yeah. So we went into it having no idea what the business model would be. We just believed that the industry was so large, the problem was so great, people are dying every day as a result of, of um, you know, falling through the cracks, that it's that age-old story of, you know, there's a pile of manure on the street and it's so big and everybody sort of walks the other way or refuses to, you know, really dive deep. But there's, you know, that few group of crazy people says there's a pony under there. And, 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 and that was really our mission uh, and, and the way we built the company. So unlike other digital health companies, especially, you know, when we were, you know, growing, uh, it was the heyday of venture capital, capital raising. We at our expense embedded ourselves at one of, uh, in one of Toronto, Canada's largest hospitals to really understand the problem. 
to really understand how does data move, privacy, how do privacy considerations come in? And that led to one of the first peer-reviewed papers comparing natural language processing and artificial intelligence algorithms, pulling this information out of the electronic health record to doctors manually pulling it themselves to find it. And we did incredibly well and it surprised everyone. And we got lucky because folks on the medical side of pharmaceutical companies who they themselves are trying to do real world evidence on, you know, studies to understand how their medications are working in the real world, read that paper, approached us and said, are you saying that you've created technology that can replace or augment manual data curation? We've been in discussions with Princess Margaret Hospital, which is the largest cancer center in Canada, who they are struggling to be able to understand what's happening in their patient population. We're willing to fund a pilot. And six months later, we were presenting at the most prestigious lung cancer conference in the world in Barcelona, both clinical endpoints of a very niche lung cancer patient population that would have been incredibly hard and laborious to study and understand through just manual processes, as well as validation of our artificial intelligence engine achieving that goal. And then pharmaceutical companies started to call, asking us to do similar studies. And again, understanding just the early days of AI, how hard technically this problem would be to solve at scale. We took the approach to say, is there an opportunity to do clinical studies that are ethics approved with pharmaceutical companies where they get those patient insights, the hospitals get the data, and we get the ability to build out our algorithms and get access to the types of data to really solve the types of problems that we described at the beginning of this conversation, which is why did our co-founder's mother pass away? Because mm -hmm. everyday clinicians don't have time to go through the huge amounts of clinical information to understand what the best you know, care pathway is for that particular patient. So and the pharma guys gave you some revenue to, to basically keep the lights on, it sounds like. It, it was more, to keep the, more than just keep the lights on. It was revenue to fund our R&D and validate our artificial intelligence engine through high-impact peer-reviewed publications, which gave us that credibility. But what it wasn't was a product. And it wasn't, you know, a business model saying, here's a recurring revenue technology enabled business model, because in the early days of a new technology like artificial intelligence, we actually thought that would be the wrong approach. Hmm. And we've seen a lot of companies raise a lot of money and actually not scale a reproducible, repeatable AI SaaS model. But what we were able to do was build a foundation that we can now productize off the engine we built through that revenue generation funding strategy. Got it. So the pharmaceutical companies, these peer-reviewed reports enabled you to fund eff effectively the R&D that went into building the, the engine of the model. That makes uh, sense. How did you finance it beyond the, R, the, uh, the pharmaceutical? So you and Steven, did you guys just divvy it up 50-50 in the beginning? Yeah, so, so Steve and I, uh, a very small, um, you know, uh, friends and family seed investment. Uh, and when we say friends and family, like truly friends and family, like our families. Uh, and then, yeah, Steve and I are sweat. Did you guys like? Did you guys leave good jobs? It sounds like you both had decent jobs, so there was some risk here. Yeah, massive risk. Um, you know, Steve um, was and is a well-respected technologist within the Canadian banking industry. You know, the the chief technology officer at Bank of Nova Scotia or other banks uh, would be thrilled if he was consulting for them tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, for myself, you know, I had a, a very successful corporate career. You know, I could have 
gone in to become the Canadian CFO of a large global uh, uh, retailer. Um, and, and we were both, again, so passionate about the problem um, that we, we, we obviously both had the entrepreneurial itch, you know, to take that leap. We had supportive partners who supported us on the journey and, and made the sacrifices in lifestyle to, you know, allow their husbands to no longer collect that big salary uh, and all the prestige uh, and lifestyle that goes with it. And uh, we just, you know, rolled, rolled up our sleeves and, and plowed through. This was started back in 2016. Um, take us through up until the ultimate acquisition by Healwell. I'm, I'm curious, in particular, did the business model change? Did you move to SaaS or did you continue to fund the, the, the R&D through these pharmaceutical studies? Uh, maybe, maybe just take us up to present day. How, how do you make money today? Yeah. So, so how we make money today is productizing the engine that we developed all around being able to identify and pinpoint unmet patient needs. So we have a number of What do you mean by that? Like, how, how do you productize it? Like are hospitals buying it or who, who's buying yeah. it? So, so Canadian hospitals are not buying it. Uh, U.S. hospitals um, were in the pilot phases of a, with a number of them. And what, you know, they're paying us to do is to be able to identify patients who are candidates for procedures and interventions that generate revenue for the hospital, reduce their risk, and increase their rankings. So in that same tragedy that happened to Stephen's mother, in America, I think it's uh, two and a half percent of Americans suffer from valvular heart disease. Fifty-one percent of them go undiagnosed. Hmm. Every patient who may have the evidence in their record that they're a candidate for a valve replacement is worth a certain amount of economics to that hospital in the U.S. So a, a product that is able to identify those patients and then share in the economics, so not a SaaS model, but you know, on a, on a revenue share models is, is quite compelling. Within you know, the life science industry and pharmaceuticals, you know, they spend huge amounts of money on real world evidence, huge amounts of money really trying to be better partners to their healthcare systems by providing analytics and insights into patient unmet needs. So an ex when I, a specific example is if you were to ask a dermatologist, both in Canada or in the US, how many patients do you have with plaque psoriasis who isn't on the latest medication that will change their life? They'll be able to wear a t-shirt outside for the first time, have the coverage that they can be on the medication and have severe disease and are not on the medication. They would have no idea. They can't even query within their current electronic health record system how many plaque psoriasis patients they have. So we were able to, to, to provide this insight both yeah. back to the dermatologist just so that she can improve care for their patients. But if you're a pharmaceutical company who's competing for, you know, this space from a, a treatment perspective, just understanding those insights in an aggregate appropriate way is incredibly important. And how they get at this information today is literally, they'll have clinicians around a table during a dinner and ask them questions, or they'll send them surveys. It's so there's a whole slew of products that, you know, the engine powers in the early days of artificial intelligence, and in an industry that makes up 20% of GDP, and we understand less than 10% of what is happening in the real world. This sounds like a, the ultimate Kevin Costner business model, you know, the old, uh, if we build it, they will come idea that your focus in the, in, in the first seemingly half decade of this company has been, let's go after the, the idea at a, at a macro level. Like when you're describing the inefficiency of the, of the data movement and, and the, chaos that is, you know, patient records and so forth. Like there's a huge problem you're trying to solve, but 
you weren't obsessed with the way you were going to monetize it. In other words, we're, we're, you know, we're definitely going to do SaaS. We're going to have a mobile app. Every doctor's going to have it in their office. Like you, you weren't thinking of it in a, in a, in a very like last mile kind of way. You're, you're much higher up in terms of your thinking. Like if we build this, we'll be able to monetize it six ways to Sunday. Like we don't have to worry about the exact way. Was, am I characterizing correctly the way yeah, you thought about it? You're, you're absolutely correct. And then that mindset, that philosophy, that authenticity around that mission is what led to the transaction with Heal Well. Yeah, let's talk about that. So where are you at? And and what was there some sort of trigger that made you want to sell or what happened? Yeah. So just, you know, we were just describing the problem that we embarked to solve in the early days of a paradigm shift in technology within artificial intelligence, but also in the backdrop of competitive companies. You know, every company today is an AI company in some way, shape or form, at least yeah. in their marketing materials. Uh, raised, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. So huge amounts of capital raised and nobody really cracking that nut. But there are certain things you need to be able to scale. Number one, capital. Number two, access to data. And not just access to any types of data, but access to the notes that we described, where the evidence of these patients falling through the cracks exists. So you're absolutely, we reached a point where as a company, we had over 19 high impact peer reviewed publications validating our artificial intelligence claim. To put that in perspective, not even companies like Google or big tech companies you know, have that. And it hit home for us when we got a call and were nominated for a pregallion best digital health company. And pregallion is the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in the life science industry. Hmm. And we thought it was a joke. And when we said, really? how do you hear about us? We haven't raised any money. We haven't pursued you know, a SaaS model. If we did pursue a SaaS model, we wouldn't have technically solved the problems that we solve to build the engine, get the validation, um, to now deliver on the product monetization. And they said, the criteria for the pregallion is you need to demonstrate a path to improving the human condition. And therefore, you need more than two publications validating your technology in a high impact journal. And he said, Aaron, the minute we put that criteria in, you'd be amazed how short the list of AI companies became. Hmm. So we were at that point where we said, now is the time to commercialize and scale. And of course, we started to go, you know, the VC route. And, you know, even when the market turned with chat G GPT, generative AI, there was still a lot of interest in AI. But we knew that scale didn't just mean capital. We needed access to data. And if anything, access to data with the right partners and the right mindset was that missing piece to allow us to scale. So it wasn't so much about an exit. It was trying to find a like-minded partner who said, listen, we're all working towards that full dining room set, you know, dinner party. You may be two chairs short. We have those two chairs. But if we can bring it together, look at the value that we can create. And it was in the conversations that we were having with venture capital, which could bring capital under certain terms, but not data. And then really, you know, getting connected to the incredible team, both at Well Health and Heal Well, um, that brought both to the table. And to our surprise, was right under our nose in our backyard in Canada, but with a global footprint. Aaron, let me just pause you there. So you're you're talking to the VCs. How, how big are you at this point? Like number of number of employees or yeah, fifteen employees, um, MSAs with large top label pharmaceutical companies. So you know enterprise level engagements with companies like Johnson and Johnson and Roche and Pfizer and Amgen okay. and AstraZeneca um, haven't commercialized, but were our key partners in the clinical studies 
that enabled us to build um, our technology. Um, and, um, you know, moving away from the R&D approach to now is the time to commercialize and scale. And what does that investment thesis look like? And did you have any sense of, because you hadn't yet really monetized it beyond these, uh, these, these, uh, the funding of these studies, did you have any sense of, of how you were planning to value the company? Did, did the VCs sort of put a value on it? Like, what, what was that like? Yeah, so one of the things we learned early on from VCs is valuation is entirely based on how much money you need and what percentage they're willing to give away at a particular stage. So one of the things that we learned early on even when we dabbled to see at the early days is VC and approach because everybody's saying, go to VCs. So, you know, companies in the seed round, especially during the frothy 20, you know, 2020, 2021, you know, they'd say, okay, I'm raising $5 million. Well, just the playbook was, okay, you're raising 5 million at a $20 million valuation. And then, you know, of course the money's in. So then you hit certain milestones and then, you know, Series A, $40 million valuation and just keeps going up and up, um, but not tied to any fundamentals. But at least that provided for us a benchmark around in the AI space, how VCs or capital was valuing capabilities, technology, proof points like ours. And is $5 million and a $20 million uh, total valuation, is that sort of roughly what they were thinking? So... Depends when, but yeah, and, and then it's everything that comes with that. So, you know, what, what a lot of folks and a lot of the co-founders that I've had the opportunity of talking with over the last number of years is you read the headline that, wow, this company just raised $10 million and is worth, you know, $100 million. Um, and they may be holding on to the equity, but what they don't tell you is uh, it's gated. And that particular CEO can't write a $50,000 check without the approval of the board that they no longer control. And was that something you were worried about? Like, so it sounds like when you thought about the VC, you saw some term sheets and you're like, oh, those, they're making me a little squeamish because not only they didn't come with data, access to data, which is one of the raw materials that makes your model work, but also, the terms sounded a little bit punitive. Am I reading between the lines or? Yes and no. One of the things we learned is it all comes down to the people and partners and, and values and mission. There's some phenomenal VCs out there. And we've had the opportunity to, you know, interact with those VCs. You know, like in all industry, there's VCs who do have that predatory mindset, you know, driven by their pressures on what the types of returns they need to deliver back to, to their investors. Um, so it was less about the VC, non-VC approach. You know, we had companies approach us for acquisition of our IP where there just wasn't that mindset. It was, you know, we've got some cash on the balance sheet. We want to be able to show that, you know, we're, we're dipping our toe in AI. But there wasn't that commitment to actually unlocking data at scale to a improve healthcare, but also to unlock incredible economics that nobody has unlocked yet using AI in healthcare. So it was the mindset, the team at Well, the team at Heal Well, their vision that really set the foundation for what became the, um, you know, the eventual exit. And, you know, why was it a acquisition or a, you know, versus a, um, you know, an investment? It was really just a conversation that, you know, I had with the CEO who said, you know, Aaron, we believe in what we're doing, what you're doing. This is what we're doing. If we are going to open up our data ecosystem to you, then we need an eventual path of control. And my respondent saying, if you're going to open up, you know, your data ecosystem, provide these resources, um, we're happy to give up that control because Steve and I were so passionate about what we can achieve together to create that one plus one equal three. And that more than anything else determined the deal structure and how we approach the deal structure than a particular mode of financing or mode of terms.
Okay, that's super helpful. But for for our listeners who may need to catch up a little bit here, uh, let's let's so in the in the sort of high arc of the story, you're you're talking to VCs and 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 they're coming with money and terms, but not necessarily data. How did you first uh, initiate your conversation with Healwell? How did that come about? Yeah, I was out pitching. Like we knew we needed to solve these problems to grow. And, you know, we went through that same journey of, um, you know, going through the, the, the hundred no's or, you know, the, the various conversations to get to that right partner. And, and explain what Healwell does and why they were such a good partner. Yeah. So, so, so Healwell is a, a new repurposed publicly traded company with a strategic alliance agreement and a tight connection to a company called WellHealth. Now, WellHealth is the largest private provider of healthcare in Canada. So they have done a phenomenal job um, over the last five years under the leadership of uh, a gentleman by the name of Hamid Shabazi, who's just an, an incredible CEO, of successfully aggregating clinics, both in Canada and the US, but also aggregating health technology companies, specifically electronic health record companies. So they own also some of the largest electronic health record companies uh, in Canada and a number of significant assets in the US, Australia, and Germany. And Keowell is the company with the similar mission to ours. They wanna be a preventative healthcare company utilizing artificial intelligence and data science looking first to unlock all of the data that's buried not being used within the well health ecosystem which provides both data for our artificial intelligence engine to productize but just as importantly provides that loop back to the clinician and the provider where we can actually provide these tools in their hands so they can improve care and so yeah, so well health has got this treasure trove of data and 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 they are saying, okay, you know, we we can we can build out an AI company heal uh in this case it's called Heal Well AI, spin it out as a separately publicly traded company. And Heal Well was the company that you entered into conversations with around how can we partner and so forth. So walk through the deal. Uh, you were starting to get into it a little bit. They were looking for control. So like, how did the, the, the specter of valuation come up? Maybe talk us through the deal itself. Yeah. So, you know, we, we started off with just principles. What, you know, before even talking about numbers, uh, what's our vision? Are we aligned on vision? Are we aligned on how, you know, we're going to approach a lot of the, you know, business discussions uh, that we're, we're going to have? So, you know, right off the bat, here's a company that if the valuation metric would be based on revenue or EBITDA, we might as well stop the discussion now. Not just because we can't back, you know, back envelope a multiple that would make sense. But because that's not the principles around what you're, we're trying to achieve. This isn't an acquisition of revenue of EBITDA. This is an acquisition of technology expertise to collectively solve this problem and deliver on this mission. So there was comfort around that. So and how that, did you get them? I mean, that's like every entrepreneur's dream is to be able to convince and acquire to value uh, the vision as opposed to just going back and falling back on a multiple of EBITDA or multiple of revenue. So how did you do that? Because again, like, I don't care what industry it is. Every entrepreneur wants to spin like kind of a tale of like, Hey, look at this big shiny ball we can go after. And then the inquirer says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, like we're, we buy businesses based on a multiple of EBITDA. <laughs> so nice yeah. vision, but like, we're going to give you X times EBITDA. So like, how did you make the case that they should forget about revenue and EBITDA and, and talk about the vision? Yeah. So, so I think, so number one, I think when they started to pull back, do they, you know, they were looking for technology companies and digital, you know, science companies and peel back the onion. At every juncture of our story at Pentavir, we were true and authentic to that mission. So it passed that sniff test, which also attracted the partners, right? The fact that we had 19 peer-reviewed publications, the fact that we had existing relationships and testimonials 
with you know, large pharmaceutical companies who said, this is a good group of people to work with. And we built those relationships because we weren't trying to sell them a growing SaaS model that hasn't been you know, proven out yet just to hit a funding milestone. So our entire journey authentically stayed true to that. The other thing that we did, and I, I mentioned earlier in the conversation about my time at retail. So I started my career at a, at a, it's a Canadian store called Winners. It's owned by TJX, so the TJ Maxx of Canada. And I remember the founder had a saying that resonated with me, which is your first markdown is your cheapest markdown. And, and, and what he meant by that is a buyer would get passionate about a particular product and it wouldn't sell. So they're like, if I just mark it down 10%, then also what is, ends up happening? It just stays on the shelf, markdown after markdown, take your first markdown at the beginning. So when we signed the NDA, we disclosed everything around our company transparently, the good, the bad, you know, the things that lawyers and accountants would advise you not to disclose because of all of the risks that are associated with it. We disclosed all of that even before the point of LOI, because our thinking was your first markdown is your cheapest markdown. We want to be as transparent as possible because that's the nature of the partnership that we want to forge. Um, yes, there's risk, but you know what we've done over the last six years isn't trivial. And we felt confident enough in our relationships with our customers, our relationship with the industry, the publications that we had. Um, and, and, and that was a decision that we made. So that informed the first iteration of the LOI, which wasn't the LOI we settled on. But as we started those negotiations and typical, you know, financial transactional terms would pop up by all of the advisors around the table, we had, you know, the high ground, not only of our journey, but to be able to say, listen, we disclosed all that. We were truthful in that. We didn't pretend that we cracked a business model in this particular thing, but here's the customers we have. Here's the testimonial. Here's the thesis around that business model. Here's the proof we have. Here's the gasoline we need to pour. Are you interested? And then if they were interested, it just so happens that in healthcare and artificial intelligence, if we can, in fact, crack these codes, the value is in the billions, like the economics of being able to solve healthcare, health oh, patients is, is so large that, you know, the, the terms of, of, of what we all feel good about um, is, is, a, is, you know, a stone in the bucket. So did they try to probe you for what you wanted for the company? Like what kind of total valuation you were looking for? Did you share a number or did they kind of come up with it first? We shared a number. We shared a construct around what we needed um, for our friends and family. We shared a construct because at the same time, we had people saying, you know, we'll invest in Pentavir. So raising, you know, $5 million of capital was not a barrier for us based on the evidence uh, and proof points that we had. Um, and we were just very transparent. We weren't posturing. Um, we said, you know, speak to references. And, and, you know, those conversations aren't easy, but then going back to the principles, understanding what's really important for your purchaser. So path to control was really important for our purchaser. That was a red line. For us, they wanted control. You know, yeah. for us, we said, okay, we're happy to give the keys. But if we're giving the keys, then you got to purchase those keys rather than it be in a full earnout, rather than it be, you know, in, in options that will materialize on, on if come. We can structure a deal there, but it's fair in terms of, you know, Steve, myself, our early investors put in, you know, our blood, sweat, and tears in the company. We weren't, you know, negotiating from a point of weakness where, you know, we had 200 employees, we raised $30 million at a crazy valuation, which made us a unique company in the digital AI space. And I would say we didn't enter it from a point of greed in terms of a full exit. We said, we actually want to join the team. 
And both Steve and I and our collective team who spent time in the corporate career, like we we're excited to be on the inside, like on the entrepreneur, you're like, you know, you're on the outside trying to get in and, and sure you're the CEO and, and, and you don't answer to anybody. But that idea of, you know, having a boss and working with him, like that didn't turn either of us off if we can deliver scale and build upon the mission that we started Pentavir in the first place. And we're incredibly fortunate and privileged that Heal Well and, and, and Well are, are and appear to be those partners. So you mentioned Heal Well had this kind of line in the sand where they needed a, a roadmap to control. I get that. What were your hard lines in the sand? Like, did, was it like, we need X amount of cash? We need, you know, no hold back on, on the share? Like, did you have specific things that you were insistent yeah. on? So, so specific, we had, we had a specific cash component um, that was, you know, that we were, we were quite clear on. Um, and we were also quite clear that the construct of the deal needs to reward Steve and I and our early shareholders on day one at, at, at a certain threshold. And we were, we, were, we were quite clear and authentic in terms of what those were, why, the personalities that were around the table. And if we want to do a deal, here's you know, the basics of, of the construct. And it, it actually took, so you, know, you can imagine the first few versions of the LOI wasn't that. Presented in good faith, but you know, money is going in as debt rather than as equity with all of the covenants that you know, come with with debt, right? Um, and I flew, you know, to Vancouver for a day to have that, you know, that dinner, that to have that meeting and dinner. And I said, let me walk you through that vision. We've already disclosed an incredible amount. Let me walk you through. And let's just say you either believe in this, you know, here's what your red lines are, and we accept these are what we accept. Here's what our, our ours are. Let me just you know share why we're excited about you. Firstly, but let's also share our perspective on why we think you should be excited about us, and and poke holes in that. You know, like let's let's roll up our sleeves. Let's not hold punches. If any of those assumptions are wrong, then let's have that conversation, and there won't be a deal. And I find most people are afraid to have those conversations or are having those conversations surrounded by so many advisors, right? So many other, you know, parties that are all advocating for the right interests, but it clouds that crucial conversation that needs to be had to see if there's a partnership or not a partnership. Yeah, well said. And, and getting you know, beyond the lawyers and, and actually having the kind of direct conversation with the decision maker, I think is, is great. Explain why it mattered to you that the acquire, in this case, Healwell, put cash into the business in the form of equity and not debt. Again, our listeners will be going through this for the first time. So that might not compute as to like why that would matter to you. So why would it, is it better to have the, the cash as equity and not debt? Explain that. Yeah. So, 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 so it doesn't always like, that's not a hard and fast rule. Um, not to go too deep, but there's a very different, um, you know, governance structure, risk reward in terms of debt versus equity in terms of how money comes in. So, you know, debt, there's no equity going out, but there's covenants. So if certain things aren't met, then, you know, and, and that debt holder can call the loan, then it doesn't matter what the valuation is, what the value of the equity is, equity can quickly go to zero. Uh, and, and in what's called, you know, the pecking order, debt is always above equity in the pecking order. So in our particular circumstance, in terms of where we're at and the types of partnership that we were talking about, um, not that we were opposed to debt, but it comes to what are the specific terms of that debt. And I got to give, you know, the, you know, Alex and Hamid at Heal Well a lot of credit 
because debt is any advisor will tell you in our particular situation for that type of financing, debt is the preferred vehicle because it's advantageous to, you know, the acquirer. They put up their hand and said, you know what, we're just going to make it an all equity deal because we believe in our in the partnership. This is how we're showing we're going to have skin in the game together to grow a billion dollar company. And, and, and that was a, uh, a big boat of, of um, you know, confidence for us that they put up their hands and just said, yeah, we're, we're in agreement to the principles of what we want to achieve together. And, and it was tested. Uh, you know, these aren't small organizations. And this, these are, you know, we were acquired by a public company. And for your listeners who don't know, when public companies make an acquisition, the fiduciary responsibility and that threshold around value is that much higher. It doesn't just have to pass, you know, the scrutiny of the principles of the company. It needs to be defended by a board and auditors and, you know, public, you know, public shareholders, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we, we, we went through that process and it was tested at times. Like at one point when we were going through the due diligence process, you know, one of the, you know, individuals, it just, it didn't, it didn't feel right. And I remember sending the text. Um, I said, you know, the deal's likely off because if we can't solve small problems like this and work, you know, collectively within the principles, then we're not going to solve big problems. So the entire thing is a just a, 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 a house of cards that will likely fall apart. And what's interesting is when, when, when that sort of moment happened, it was the best thing that happened to the deal because we both came back and said, no, we are aligned to these principles. And that allowed us to negotiate through all of the various technical terms that are very relevant to a deal structured like ours, where there's still 47% of the company, or actually 48% of the company, still owned by Pentavir shareholders that are locked up, where control has essentially been given you no know, away, with all of the different you know, triggers that occurred, that's in a 200-page shareholders agreement and a 60-page share purchase agreement with you know, seven law firms looking at it. We were able, you know, one of the things we're really proud of is the final LOI was signed on September 22nd. We announced enough definitive documents signed to the public markets on November 15th and closed the transaction on December 1st. That's like incredible. And we did it well. It was a clean close and not sloppy. We were able to do that. Because we had these principles, trust, and transparency over, you know, at the beginning, and we were ready for the due diligence process. Who did you send the text to? The, 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 the principles. Meaning the, the, the people at Healwell who were yeah. running the deal. Yeah. Got it. And, and, and what was the issue that you were, the small issue that you were stumbling on? Just, just you know, you start meeting, you know, different people across the organization who are asking questions like, you know, hold on, why are we buying this company? Can mm -hmm. we do this? You know, one of the things we would always come across selling in, you know, just, you know, with pharmaceutical companies, or even as we were going through as a technology company, even as we were going through seeing, you know, what is that right? One plus one equals three partner, not invented here syndrome, right? Got um, yeah. I love publicly traded deals because, of course, the acquirer has to release all the nitty gritty. So, so yeah. we have it here. We talked about it before, yeah. but, but we can talk about it publicly because they, they had to disclose it to their shareholders. So the, the acquisition uh, placed a value on your company of $15 million. They, they acquired, as I understand, 47%. They put $1.2 million of... Um, Sorry, yeah. So fifteen million total valuation. Uh, the currency. So they bought forty-seven percent of the, the company. Currency was one point seven five million cash. The balance paid in Healwell stock. Then subsequently, they also invested one point two million dollars um, to to get to that fifty-one percent equity uh, position that they were they were really focused on. Correct. Have I got the basic numbers right? 
Yeah. And, and, and one thing just to add about the construct of the deal that's in the public domain, and again, speaks to an approach, you know, if you're a listener looking to sell their business, maximize value, find that right partner, set it up where you hope that the outcome is good a year later, two years later. Um, you know, this, this idea of trust, transparency, how that manifested itself in the deal is, you know, we were working hard because November 15th was an important, um, you know, time period for Heal Wealth in terms of, you know, an earnings schedule, et cetera. And most deals where there's public shared consideration, it would be, you know, 10-day weighted average, five-day weighted average at close. And, and we said, listen, we are working really, really hard to hit the timelines. I've got shareholders, I got to go back to stakeholders. Well, if we're going to announce before we're fully closed, then we're hopefully going to create upside on the stock that we're all that we won't be able to participate in. Is it an option to do a five-day weighted average before announcement, which is actually quite unusual mm -hmm. in, in public market deals? Um, and they agreed to that. They were because you're just saying that, that. The, the very announcement of the deal would pump the stock up, so. and it did. The yeah. stock went up thirty percent. Wow! And you, you guys participated in that, and we got to participate in the upside. So again, as we then move to the close, working through all the issues that you work through, um, which is an incredibly hard process. Sure, like this is this process is like going through the crucible of hell. But, you know, you, you come out, if you can conquer the dragon, you come out the other side, enriched financially, enriched personally. But, you know, the fact that we were participating in that upside with trust and good faith in an audible on it, that's sort of not normal to deal structure, where most of the lawyers are saying, well, you know, this creates a whole bunch of risk here, here and here. And it's like, no, this is the principles of the partnership we're trying to forge to create the value that we both believe we can create. A couple quick uh, follow-on questions yeah. about the deal. Um, so you retained, uh, you and Stephen and the rest of the Pentavir sh uh, shareholders retained 48%. Yeah. Do you, do you have any, any put options where you can, at some point in the future, force uh, Heelwell to buy those shares? No. Okay. And what about holdback? So you received some of your consideration in Heelwell stock. Are you allowed to sort of sell that on the public market or do you have to sort of hold on to it for a period of time? Yeah. So, again, all, all, all publicly disclosed uh, on CDAR. And again, one of the things we negotiated is uh, no holdback. Um, so, you know, we're not allowed to sell more than 10% uh, of our holdings per, you know, for the first six months per week. So if somebody wanted to liquidate, you know, they can be completely out in cash currency and be the beneficial of an increased share price within 10 weeks. Got so it. no skin in the game. Um, and again, what I've heard from advisors and, and different folks who have gone through this process, you know, having the two principles um, not be locked down like that is unique. But on the flip side, saying yes, you control when to pull the trigger. Um, for the back. Yeah, and that makes sense. I, uh, I, I'm really grateful for you oh. sharing the story. Are you up for a, a quick lightning round of questions? Just uh, a, a phrase or two answers. Great on these ones. Absolutely. What's the slimiest thing an acquirer or investor tried to, the slimiest trick, I guess, is, is yeah. a question the, uh, that an acquirer or an investor tried to play on you? Yeah, dangle, dangle, dangle. What does that mean? By dangle, 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 it's like, you know, don't worry, you know, it's, it's worth this much, but you're going to be so rich because your company's worth a hundred million dollars. So they'll put this crazy valuation on you and tell you how good and smart you are. But when you actually unpack the terms of the LOI, again, you, you, you have no control. You're not getting any of that capital out. Your, 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 your shares are below everybody else. And you can't authorize a $25,000 purchase without board approval that you don't control. Well said. Biggest mistake that you personally made during the process of selling your company that you'd like to have a do-over on if you could? Yeah, I, I think um, that um, balance between commercializing and productizing versus that R&D 
We probably waited a little longer. I think if 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 we would have, you know, really focused on that earlier and there were opportunities based on our interactions with clients to focus on that earlier, but we were too focused on building the tech, technically achieving these proof points. If I had a do-over, I would better load balance that equation. Yeah, well said. Lowest and highest moments you reached. I've heard selling your company is like this emotional roller coaster. What was the what was the low and what was the high for you? Yeah. The low was dealing with the people, your, you know, your 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 initial shareholders when there's money on the table. So 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 one of the, you know, a, a lot of the times when it's, you know, a buddy's table, I'll use the term buddy's table. Um, and, and again, every single person incredibly indebted to, incredibly grateful towards. But the approach was, let's wait till there's a deal on the table to sort of round out some of the open discussions that we've been having. Um, that's absolutely the wrong time to do it. Um, so, you know, you know, do it, even if you need to bring in a third party, you know, professional arbitrator to make that process not emotional, especially as you're dealing with family, um, you know, get that process done. Those conversations are low points. They're hard. Uh, they're messy. Um, we got through them. All the relationships are intact, but those were, were by far the lowest moments. The you, high moment was, was, you know, let me just, sorry, Aaron, let me just, let me, before you go to the high, just want to clarify. So you had the friends and family, uh, that invested in, and they wanted, uh, a better deal structure, like more cash up front. They didn't want to take shares. Like what was their pushback about? So, so, so like all companies, the evolution of companies are messy, right? You, you sort of create a vehicle, the vehicle is created under a certain context with certain shares being distributed a certain way. And then, you know, sweat is, you know, yes, you're not taking salary. You're not doing these things. Um, but we'll, 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 we'll right size it at some point and we'll figure it out when the deal's on the table. And then all of a sudden, when there's real dollars on the table and then you're starting to reallocate the pie in the backdrop of other options that can capitalize the company, right? So it's like, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll pull together $3 million to execute these milestones because we see that hockey stick and, you know, when you're in the trenches, knowing what you know, that's not the path we wanted to take. So those types of conversations to get to that, um, you know, to take all of the side conversations that occur over the length of five years and to say, now's the time the rubber is going to hit the pavement because we got to paper it. Um, that's what I need. Got it. That's that's super helpful for us. So get those conversations. If there's any ambiguity around who owns what stock at what value? Like, let's get that really buttoned up before you go to market. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about the emotional high? Yeah. So, so the, two, the emotional high is, is the privilege of making it out the other side. Every entrepreneur goes through hell. You know, I have not met an entrepreneur, whether in technology or whether it's just their family restaurant. That, that doesn't go through hell. And, you know, I, I forget who said it. There was, I think like it could have been a Jordan Peterson or somebody like that said, you know, the purpose of life is to find enough meaning in something that it's enough to overcome the suffering. Interesting. The privilege is, you know, my partner, our employees, without taking the, the normal route, we started an AI digital health company. Um, and we were acquired and recognized in value for the contribution that we made that was meaningful for us, the purpose that we stayed true to. And we made it out the other side in an exit. And the feeling of privilege, not success, not ego. It's like you're climbing a mountain and you're in survival mode. One misstep. You know, you can die and, and you're climbing and it's hard. And when you reach the peak, you don't look at it as a sense of a comp. You look at it as a, as a privilege to have gone through that process, gained the wisdom of going through that process, to have lived and survived through that process 
and the privilege to now be connected to a group of partners where the next, you know, the next pitch of that climb, we believe we can actually create, you know, I gotta be careful now with forward looking statements, but from a mission perspective, we believe we can actually go back to why we were nominated for a pre-Gallian community, a privilege to be in a position to actually use artificial intelligence to improve the human condition by preventative care and finding these patients who are not getting the care that they need. Well, so it sounds like you had a lot of personal experience, your time at Winners in finance and so forth, uh, but was there any other resources, were there any other resources that you could point our listeners to uh, that were helpful in educating yourself in particular around this exit negotiation? Like, is there any, are there courses or, you know, People we should follow on Twitter. Like, are there any any resources you can point our listeners to? Yeah. So again, this is where I, I, I may be, we may be a little different. Um, we, I read the, the the Ray Dalio book, um, mm. and he, and he referenced a book yeah. called um, uh, by Joseph Campbell, uh, "Hero of a Thousand Faces," and 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 what this book is is it's essentially saying that um, across all cultures we have what's called this hero's journey. It's the Star Wars story, right? And I think, Steve, connecting ourselves to that hero's journey and understanding it and staying true to those old mythological stories, those faith-based stories, even, you know, they reference Jonah, right? So what is, what's the story of Jonah? that darkness lurks beneath and everybody, you know, the whale will come up and swallow you, but with the right mindset. And if you can change your mindset, you can come out the other side transformed for the good. And it's not hokey, like during the crucible of the journey of being an entrepreneur, a business owner, looking for an exit, more days than not are bad days than good days. More often than not, your time is spent solving problems than celebrating wins. Um, and you know, how do you make it through where your ego, your temper isn't taking over to cloud the really hard, precise, right decisions that need to be made? Those stories in books like Joseph Campbell, you know, Hero of a Thousand Faces, you know, the, you know, you read the Ray Dalio book and there's a bunch of books, you know, he doesn't talk about economics or step one. He talks about wisdom. Pain plus reflection equals growth. Great. So then when you're in pain, you're not saying something's wrong, right? It's the coal to be thrown into the fire to propel you forward if you can solve that problem. And I would say more than anything else as an outside resource, those wisdoms and wherever anybody can connect to that wisdom, whether through a mentor, somebody who's been through the experience, whether it's through a faith, or books like that in terms of our old mythologies and old hero journey stories. You know, just from my own personal experience, that got us through the hardest times um, to be in the privileged position that we're so humbly, you know, you know, humbled that we're, we're in. Well, I can certainly endorse the Ray Dalio book. I haven't read Joseph Campbell's book, but I will pick that up. Um, you both, you and Stephen, gave up prestigious jobs, well-paid jobs to take a flyer on a new AI company. It turned out well. I'm hoping you bought yourselves a physical trophy to commemorate the win. What have you bought yourself? You're shaking your head. Don't let me down here, Aaron. Uh, we, we have it. And it's funny because I was just having that conversation with uh, Steve two days ago. I haven't even uh, deposited the shares into a brokerage account yet. Really? Um, but, 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 but I will tell you, um, I, I, I will tell you what, I haven't bought anything. Um, number one, just the knowledge of to be able to dig ourselves out of the hole, right, is, is something. Um, you know, I, I go to, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish and I go to synagogue on Saturdays. Not that I'm a religious person, but that's, you know, where I found community, where I found sort of my Zen. So um, there was a group of men um, who um, on a Saturday mornings we would leave and we would have a drink. Uh, and, and that was always something I look forward to. So what I did do is I sponsored, I bought an incredibly obnoxiously expensive bottle of scotch that would have been a uh, 
a, a life moment for every single one of those, I shouldn't say men, men and women in that particular group, um, because nobody would spend that money on, on, on a bottle of scotch and, and, and created that moment together, which was meaningful for me. Don't need much else. Like that was the win to the surprise of my wife. When she said, what do you want to do? I said, that's what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of scotch was it? It was a very old Macallan. Macallan, okay. Well, I uh, I hope you enjoy that uh, on Saturday mornings with a great deal of pleasure. Um, we will put uh, your contact information. I'm assuming LinkedIn is the best fo- place yeah, for folks to reach out if they want to learn more about Healwell and your partnership. Yeah. Awesome. We'll put, uh, Aaron, your uh, LinkedIn profile at builtocell.com. And uh, thanks for doing this. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for all the work that you do to support entrepreneurs and business owners get you know the best exit they can get for everything that they put into their companies. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Aaron. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to this show. And if you want to help support this podcast, I would encourage you to share this episode out with a friend or colleague. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's podcast, be sure to visit Aaron's episode page, which you'll be able to find over at built to Sell. Also a reminder, if you want to watch this full video interview, I'd encourage you to head over to our YouTube channel at Built to Sell Radio. Special thanks to Dennis Labatagula for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, be sure to visit valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week.